All right. It is great to be back with you uh, again for Wednesday night worship. If you have been here, you know that James has been saying some pretty difficult things for us. And I wish I had better news for you tonight. I really do. Because in my opinion, there is no stronger, harder passage than the one we're going to look at tonight together. With that in mind, please turn in your Bibles to James chapter 3. And as you're turning, let me ask you a question. How intense is your struggle to control your tongue? How intense is your struggle to control the words that come out of your mouth? Jay Rassman was hunting deer at a wildlife preserve in Northern California. This seems really hot. He came to a rocky ledge that he had to climb. And when he got to this rocky ledge, his head, as it got just over the ledge, he sent some movement to the right of his face. And a coiled rattlesnake stuck, uh, struck with lightning speed just missing Rassman's ear. The force of the strike actually land, it caused the snake to land on Rassman's shoulder. He said that the fangs were actually stuck in the wool turtleneck sweater that he was wearing. The snake then began to coil around Rassman's neck. And he knew he had to act quickly, and so he grabbed the snake with his hands behind his head, and he tried to pull the snake off, and he said that he could feel the warm venom streaming down his back. The struggle caused him to lose his balance and to actually fall backwards, head first through brush and lava rocks, his binoculars bouncing down beside him. He later comments, as luck would have it, he ended up lodged between two rocks with his feet, uphill from his head. He said that he could barely move. He managed to wiggle just enough to get his rifle and disengage the snake's fangs from his sweater. But that caused the snake to get leveraged and the the snake struck again eight attempts at his face and it managed to hit him four times with his nose, the snake, just below the eye. He said that he had to keep his face turned so the snake could not get a good angle. And commenting on the scene, Rassman said that this chap and I were eyeball to eyeball for close to 20 minutes. He said, and I discovered something about snakes. They don't blink. He said that he had fangs like darning needles and he had to choke him to death. He said at the end of the 20-minute trial, when it was all said and done, when he tried to toss the dead snake aside, he couldn't let go. He said that he actually had to pry his fingers from around the snake's neck. Does that describe your struggle to control your tongue. 
Well, you know, actually, our struggle to control our tongue is nothing like that. You see, for Jay Rassman, his struggle lasted 20 minutes. And the problem with our tongue is that it lasts a lifetime. Jay Rassman was fighting a four-foot-long rattlesnake. We, I want to suggest, are fighting something much more horrific, much more ugly, and much more deadly than a rattlesnake. We have got to understand something. When we come to James chapter 3, James is pointing out for us our desperate tongue problem. James' whole point is to bring us to the point of despair over the way we use our tongue. Why is he trying to get us to despair? Because until we come to the point of despair, until we give up hope and everything else, until we see how great and how horrible our tongue really is, and that there's nothing, nothing, no technique, no strategy, no working on our vocabulary, nothing can help us. Until we get there, we will never look to Jesus and the promises of the gospel as our only hope. In James chapter 3, James is hammering away and he's trying to show us that our problem is greater than anyone could ever have imagined. James chapter 3, follow along with me. As I read verses 1 through 12, this is a very sobering passage, but it is God's word. Follow along with me. Verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know what we, those who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man able to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they will obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. The tongue is a fire. A world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining not just part of the body, but the whole body. Setting on fire the the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird or reptile or sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing my brothers, This ought not be so. Does the spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? 
Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can the salt pond yield fresh water. Let's pray, because we desperately need it, don't we? Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would take the words off this page and pierce our hearts. I pray that you would convict us and change us and challenge us, break us over the unhealthy ways that we use our tongue. But oh, how we need Jesus. I pray that even more than that, you would help us to see Christ tonight and that we would run not to ourselves and to more strategies, but we would run to him because he truly is the only one that can help us. We pray this in his name. Amen. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but you all know it. You've all heard those words many times, particularly as you were growing up. And you all know that those words and that saying is simply not true. Because the truth is, words do hurt, don't they? Words are powerful. And we live in a world of words. And I don't know about you, I don't know everyone in this room personally, but I do know one thing about each one of you. And that is, you talk. You see, we live in a world of talk, in a world of words, but sadly our words have become so casual, haven't they? So mundane, so ordinary. And because of that, we use our words so recklessly sometimes. We use our words so carelessly, but we need to know that the Bible doesn't consider our words to be unimportant. The Bible doesn't consider our words to be ordinary. No, quite the opposite. The Bible considers our words to be very valuable and very, very important. Think about it. Genesis chapter 1. At the beginning of your Bible, the very beginning of creation, the very first words that were ever spoken were spoken by whom? God himself. Not by a human being, but by God. And one of the ways that we are like God and created in his likeness, in his image, is that we talk. Our words belong to God. And that is why the Bible, and that is why James in this passage puts such an importance on this idea of the tongue. That's why he makes such a big deal of it. And if you're not convinced yet, hopefully you are, think about your own life. The most special moments and the saddest moments in a a person's life usually revolves and it's accompanied by words. What is more exciting than when your child, when your son or daughter 
speaks their first words. But what is sadder when a human being suddenly goes silent? I have a student. She used to be involved in RUF, and her father died of brain cancer this past weekend. And when she describes this whole process of him dying and hospice being brought in, you know what the first thing is she says? The first thing she talks about is when her dad went silent. When he could no longer talk. When he would have to grunt or moan in order to get someone's attention. What is sadder than when a human being goes silent? Or what is sadder than when someone talks about the horrible things that have been said to them and they sit there there with you and they weep as if they were spoken yesterday. You see, our words are very important, aren't they? Our words have great value and they are a huge dimension of our lives. And in James chapter 3, look with me. In this passage, look back at chapter 2, but James places the words at the top of the list as far as importance and as far as revealing our faith. James says that our words are an action. Look at the passage. He goes straight from chapter 2. Look at the context. In chapter 2, we learned that faith apart from works is dead. And he goes straight in to this idea of the tongue in our words. And here's what he's saying. James is saying that our words are works. You see that? That our words reveal our faith. That our words actually prove that we have true faith. A few weeks ago, we looked at chapter 1, verse 26. Strong passage. It said, if anyone considers himself religious, if anyone considers himself to be a Christian, yet does not have a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself, and his religion is worthless. Simple question we're going to answer tonight. What does this passage say about our words? What does it say about our tongue? Three things. First of all, it says that our words are powerful. Look at verses 3 through 5 with me. James uses here three illustrations to show us the power of the tongue. The tongue, he says, is like a horse's bit. It's like a ship's rudder. It's like the fire among trees. And his point is to show us this, that this tongue is a little bitty muscle in our mouth but it has, oh, such tremendous power. Such tremendous power to control large things. If you've read the Proverbs, you know that the Proverbs have a lot to say about our words and how we talk to one another. There's an amazing Proverbs that Eugene Peterson, a pastor and writer, translates this way, very to the point. Words kill. Words give life. They are either poison or they are fruit. You choose. Words either give life to someone or they destroy someone. 
Words have life-giving power. We know this, and we know that they have power when they're used to comfort, when they're used to heal and unify and edify and encourage and build up. Think about in your own life when you hear just the right words at just the right time, spoken in just the right voice. What does it do to you? It causes you to move out into the world, doesn't it, with confidence and courage. But sadly, words kill, don't they? And if you look at this passage, you know what James is emphasizing? He's emphasizing the fact that words kill. He's focusing on the negative and the destructive power of our words. He doesn't have a whole lot of good things to say about the tongue. Look at verses 6 and 8. He starts by talking about the character of our speech. Look at that. And he says, it is towards, our speech is towards unrighteousness. It's a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is a fire, the NIV says, a world of evil. James next mentions the influence of our speech. It stains all that it touches. You see, the tongue doesn't just stain one part, but it actually affects our whole being. Then he goes on with the continuation of that influence, and he basically says that it's not something that we just grow out of. Like other sins... He says that it sets on fire the entire course of one's life. He finishes up with the tongue, with the affiliation, and this is a strong pill, but what he is saying here, James James actually says that our tongue is more pro-Satan and anti-God. He says that it's set on fire by hell. And look at how he wraps it up in verse 8. Doesn't get any stronger than this either. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Needless to say, James is dwelling on the negative. He continues in verse 9. When James says that our words, with our words, we curse the image of God. With our words, we destroy people that are made in the image of God. Friends, we must never ever think that gossip, that harsh words, slanderous words, malice words, unloving words, ungracious words, proud words are okay. It is never okay. You see, our sin... And careless words actually dehumanize people. Do you see that? We actually make people with our words, when we use them to destroy, we make them out to be less than human. And we don't see this. I don't see this. We don't see our words as venom that set the whole course of a person's life on fire. And so here's what we do. We soften it. We say things like, yes, I know I said something I regret. I know I shouldn't have said that, but I was exhausted. I was tired. Give me a break. Normally, I'm a pretty agreeable person. 
Or we say things like, I know I gave my children a tongue lashing, but they know that I care for them. James says that words are invested with power and people can and they often are destroyed by the things that we say. Some of you know this all too well. You know that words have a long shelf life, don't they? And careless words can crush a person's faith. Careless words can destroy a person's identity and careless words can damage their hope. And some of you at this point might be looking and you might be saying, Jason, this is a little over the top. I'm not so sure. Is it really that big a deal? And yes, James is saying it is that big a deal. And here's why. Because words belong to God. Not us. Words are meant to bring life. Not death. When we use words to destroy, here's what it is. It is taking a gift that God has given us and using it as a weapon. Our words belong to God and we are not allowed to use them as we please. We're not allowed to use them for our own selfish purposes. This is what happens when the teenager publicly mocks his friend. This is what happens when the prayer, re- prayer requests in our small groups and Sunday school classes turns into gossip. This is what happens when the husband consistently makes his wife the brunt of all the jokes at the dinner parties. This is what happens when the wife humiliates and demeans her husband at the dinner table in front of their children. This is what happens when friends gossip and tear other people down behind their backs. Words belong to God. That is why they are so wrong. We're not allowed to use them for our selfish purposes. You see, the truth is we're glory thieves, aren't we? We're glory thieves in that we steal God's glory when we treat words as our own creation. How are these things showing up in our lives? How are they showing up in our church? How are they showing up in our families and in our marriages and in our communities and our workplaces? Are your words giving life or are they bringing death and destroying others? James is saying that our words always leave a harvest. And the question is, what kind of harvest are your words leaving? First, we see that our words have power. Secondly, they reveal the heart. Look at verses 3 through 6 again. A careful review of these illustrations assumes 
an agent that exercises its will through the bit, through the rudder, and through the tongue. For example, the horse. A rider rides the horse and directs the bit and directs the horse. For the rudder, there is a pilot that expresses his will through the rudder and therefore guides the ship. For the tongue, the will of man expresses itself in speech that guides action. Here's the point. James is in full agreement with what Jesus says about the tongue. And that is, the heart moves the tongue. You can't miss this. The heart moves the tongue. Remember Jesus in Luke 6 6 says that out of the overflow of the mouth, the heart speaks. In other words, the words that come out of our mouths aren't caused by the situations out here. They aren't caused by the relationships that are outside of us, but rather they are caused by the way that your heart and my heart reacts to those things. We've all said it. If you said it once, you've said it a hundred times. Particularly if you're married, you know what I'm talking about. You say something you shouldn't, and you say, I didn't mean that. Biblically speaking, you know what we should say? Forgive, we should say, forgive me for saying what I meant. You see, the Bible says that if it wasn't in your heart in the first place, then it never would have come out of your mouth. So what does this mean? Well, simply put, it means that tongue problems are heart problems. Tongue problems are not technique problems. They're not vocabulary problems. We think of the tongue and our problem with our words as always being outside of us. And we say things like, if I just had better behaved children, then I wouldn't get so angry. Or if I just had a spouse that would help me around the house, I wouldn't get so frustrated. And the problem with thinking that the problem is always out here is very dangerous. It's a very dangerous heresy because if you can convince yourself of that, what happens? You start looking to yourself and you stop relying and being a seeker of the transforming grace of God. Jesus in Mark chapter 7 says it very clearly. He says it's not the things, same thing I'm saying, the things that come into a man that defile him, but it's the things that come out of him. He says, out of a man's heart, evil thoughts, deceit, gossip, slander, foolishness. The problem is not people. The problem's not your marriage. The problem's not your children or circumstances, but the problem is inside of you and inside of me. I heard a story several months ago, Paige Benton Brown. Paige Brown was a RUF intern at Vanderbilt several years ago. She moved to Dallas, Texas, and in the move, things were chaotic. And so she needed to have a prescription refilled, some mundane medication, Claritin, allergy medication, something like that, before it was over the counter. And so she decided to call her brother, who is a physician, to call in a prescription for her. 
He was reluctant to do it, but said, okay, this one time I will help you out, but you need to get a doctor. A couple of months later, you know where this is going. She calls him again. Haven't found a doctor. Can you help me out and write a refill for me? Yes, but Paige, you have to get a real doctor. Well, a few months later, she calls again. And he says, stop. I'm not doing this anymore. It's time for you to grow up and see a real doctor. Well, Paige, that summer, grew up. She grew up and got a real doctor and actually went to the doctor for the first time in 10 years. And you know if you're a new patient somewhere, you get a physical. They give you a checkup. They want to examine where you are and how healthy you are. So the doctor is chatting with her and giving her the physical, and then he takes the stethoscope and he puts it up to her chest and almost immediately stops mid-sentence and says, what is wrong with your heart? She says, what do you mean what's wrong with my heart? Nothing is wrong with my heart. He said, oh yes, there's something wrong with the rhythm. And you need to see a cardiologist right away. And Paige is going, what are you talking about? I came in here for Claritin. And now you're telling me something's wrong with my heart. He says, you don't understand. This is serious and you need help right away. It was so serious that she got into the cardiologist later that day. Goes in, the nurse brings her back, puts her up to the EKG machine. They too are chatting, and the nurse says, what's wrong with your heart? She says, I don't know. She says, you need to see the doctor right away. The doctor comes in and does the normal workup, gives her a sleep monitor, tells her to get on the treadmill and takes an ultrasound of her heart. Come to find out, her dead asleep, snoring, middle of the night, resting heart rate was 150 beats per minute. It had no regular rhythm. And the doctor calls her in and says, you have two options, have surgery, or you can take medication for the rest of your life. And the woman replies, Paige replies, this can't be happening I came for Claritin at the beginning of the day. And the doctor says, you don't understand you are at a dangerous place with your heart. And Paige replies this way. Well, other than my heart, I'm healthy, right? <laughs> to which the doctor replied, there is no health apart from your heart. You see, likewise... There is no health, spiritually speaking, apart from our hearts. Get more specific. James is saying there is no tamed tongue. There is no tongue control apart from your heart. Could it be that the reason why you've never been able to control your words is because you've totally missed the root? You have totally bypassed your heart. You see, your only hope for change, and my only hope for change, and the way we use our tongues is to stop trying so hard. Our only hope is to stop blaming our situation, to stop blaming our circumstances, and admit that the problem is you. Are you willing tonight to confess 
that you are your greatest communication problem. You see, when you can stand before the Redeemer and when you are willing to, regardless of the flaws that everyone else in your life has and the flaws that they have and the people that you interact with, when you're willing to stand before the Redeemer and say, I am my greatest communication problem, not anything else, then and only then will you begin to see change in the way you talk, and in the way you use your words. Words are powerful. Words reveal the heart. Thirdly and finally, words reveal our need for Jesus. James has shown us tonight that our words and our world of talk is really a world of trouble. And he calls us to admit that our words are consistent indicators of how desperately we need Jesus. I don't know about you, but simply reading this passage, and particularly preaching this passage, it makes me want to go and curl up in the fetal position somewhere and weep because of the words, the hurtful words, the destructive words that have come out of my mouth. Who among us can say tonight that we have not used our words in unhealthy and destructive ways for our own selfish purposes? Who among us can say that we haven't used our words as a weapon of anger rather than an instrument of peace. Better yet tonight, who is willing to raise their hand and volunteer for all of your words to be broadcast over the last month, to be broadcast here tonight for everyone to hear? Any volunteers? I didn't think so. Because verse 2, James says it takes a perfect man to raise his hand. Do you see it? James is bringing us, friends, to the end of our rope. He is trying to get us to give up hope in everything else, trying harder, new techniques and strategies, give up hope in everything and put our hope in Jesus. Why? Because He is the only one that can help us. He is the only one that can change us. Look at verses 7 and 8. I love this verse. Mankind subdues every animal, but it cannot subdue itself. (laughs) Notice, James says, it's rather implicit, but it's very clear. He says, no man can tame the tongue. And what is implied there that only God can. You want to change your words? The only way that that is going to happen is when Jesus comes through the power of His Holy Spirit and He comes into your heart, because remember the heart has to change first, and He changes your heart. And so, are you listening to your words? Instead of letting our words discourage us 
and cause us to despair and lead us to discouragement and defeat. James is saying we need to let our words cause us to run as fast as we can to Jesus and receive the forgiveness that all of us so desperately need. You've got to hear, hear this. We need to be at the feet of Jesus because it's at the feet of Jesus that we learn that Jesus died on the cross. Hear this. For every careless word that you have ever said, He died for every careless word that you will say in the future. Friends, if you are a Christian tonight, you do not have to be afraid to face the horror of your tongues. Jesus is your rescuer. Jesus is your redeemer. And Jesus longs to redeem your words and my words. The children's story, the boy who loved words. It's a story about a young Jewish boy named Selig. Selig's peers collected stamps and coins. Selig collected words. He gathered these words from people's mouths and books and irresponsible words that came out of people's mouths. And he gathered all these words and he kept them in the pockets in his pants and he kept them in the drawers in the chest in his room. His peers, as you would imagine, thought Selig was rather strange. In fact, they thought he was so strange that they gave him a word and it was oddball. And Selig too took that word and put in his collection until later he understood what that word meant. And once he understood that that was a hurtful word, Selig was broken. Selig got very sad. And it hurt him deeply. And so Selig does what we often do. He gathered up all of his words and he left the city. Until one day he's walking and he meets on a street corner a genie who tells him that his mission in life is to take all of his words and to use them for the good of his neighbor, to use them for the good of the city. And so Selah gets all of the words and he puts them in a bag and he marches back into the heart of the city and he sneaks into different parts of the city. And if you were a baker, Selah would sprinkle words like delicious and good and fantastic and beautiful around your bakery. And then he, there's this scene where he's approaching two neighbors that are fighting and he goes and he lays things like hush and peace and love and the result is these neighbors begin to love one another and actually give flowers to one another. You see, Selig, by his words, as a result of using his words to give life, Relationships change. People fall in love. Businesses flourish. And the city is ultimately changed at its very heart and its very core. Selig becomes a hero because Selig brought the right words at the right time to a city that needed redemption. That a city to a city that needed healing. Do you see it? 
That's it. That is what God's people are called to be. The church, we are to be a people that gather up all of the words. And we are to take those words and keep them and move right into the heart of the city. To move right into our relationships, our marriages, our families, our churches, our workplaces. And we are to speak words of life. And through those words of life, people start to flourish. People start to change. Places start to flourish and change. By God's grace, that will begin to happen in our lives. And not only in our lives, but in the life of our church. Let's pray. Father, we need this table tonight desperately we need your forgiveness we need to experience your nearness and we see that all laid right before us as we prepare for communion Father I pray that you would lead us to repentance over what we've heard Father, would you change our hearts? We can't do it ourselves, and so we beg you to change our hearts and change the way we talk and speak. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.